0: Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're excited that you're here and we're here. And that you keep coming back. We appreciate that you spend time listening to us. Nobody else does. (laughs) Our children don't listen to us. That is factual. Do you remember that Oprah episode where they were, I think it was a Mother's Day special and one of the people from the audience got up and be like, 90% of it sucks and 10% is good. I don't know what the rest of you are going on about. Really? That's so funny. (laughs) And she got like totally slammed over it. Oh, I bet she did. Yeah. And like, how dare you not think it's the most wonderful job ever? And I'm like, you go girl, tell the truth. (laughs) It is the most wonderful job, but it is also the hardest job the yeah. most tiring job. Parenting is hard. It is hard. So all you parents yeah. out there listening, keep at it. You rock. And if you need a little break, listen to True Crime Murder with me and Melissa. That's what we're here for, to take you away, a little escape. A little escape because these people are always having a worse day than you are. True. <laughs> <laughs> or just the insanity of it makes your life seem a little bit more sane. That's right. Okay, now let's get into it. I'm not, I'm not laughing anymore. Okay. You can get into your case. Sorry, I fed Melissa cookies before we began today, so she might be on a bit of a sugar high, which is great. No yawning in today's case. Maybe a lot of chair shifting, though. Let's go. That's true. My chair did squeak last week. So (laughs) anyone who listened to last week's case, sorry. If you heard some squeaks, that was me. She was antsy. Yeah. So I must start by saying I didn't pick today's case. Today's case picked me. Ooh. So let me explain. My first idea was to cover John Wayne Gacy, the OG killer clown. (laughs) She's gonna do it. But nope, I got too freaked out too early in the process. It is rare for me to get freaked out by a case, but I have genuinely feared clowns since childhood. (laughs) Anybody who knows me can attest to that. We're always coming up with ways to scare her. (laughs) Yes, and clowns will do it. So nope. Sorry, you guys. You have to listen to that somewhere else or Melissa has to do that case because I couldn't do it. I think the best is that your neighbors put that big clown thing up in their window at Halloween. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Seriously. Okay. I came up the stairs from doing laundry and at the side of my house looks into the front of somebody else's house and I look out the window and there is this giant six feet by six feet, this killer clown face and it was all lit up and illuminated through their window. (laughs) And I both had a heart attack, like seriously, on my Apple Watch, it checked my, I had like a warning that my heart rate (laughs) was too high. So I decided instead, since John Wayne Gacy was off the table, that I would find a murder case that occurred on Halloween to discuss today, since Halloween is coming up soon. There are so many to choose from, which is crazy. Yeah, it's shocking how many murders occur on Halloween. So be careful, everybody. People are channeling their inner evil, I guess. I guess. So I narrowed in on two super intriguing cases and I started researching only to realize that I couldn't find any information and I mean no information on either of the killers backgrounds wanting to stay true to our mission of digging deep into the motives of a murderer. I couldn't use either of those cases to discuss. Oh, and that is so frustrating. How much time you spend going through so many reports about different cases and then to find out that there's not the background information that you feel is justified or that we want to deliver to our listeners. Exactly. It wasn't good enough for you guys, so I couldn't use it. So I wasted my time doing those ones, but they were super intriguing cases. So I kept looking and I came across a case that had tons of horrific details about the killer's childhood. One of the worst I've probably actually ever read. And it was so clear how he could become a cold-blooded killer. So I was actually excited to use this case. Oh, we're going to be digging deep today then? Well, you would think so. But upon further research, I found out that years after this guy was executed, they used newly developed DNA technology to prove that he was in fact innocent. He wasn't even a murderer. Not a dirtbag after all? Nope. Oh, that's rough. So I thought I couldn't even use that case. And after such a horrific childhood? I know. it was. I thought, oh, classic. This one is going to fit in perfectly. We'll have so much to talk about, but no. That is brutal. I did have the thought that I could tell it anyways, and then at the end say, well, this was your trick for trick or treat." (laughs) but then I thought, no, I don't want to waste your hour. (laughs) But what an interesting case that we could cover later on. Oh, yeah. His name is Johnny Frank Garrett, if anyone is interested. As we're working towards having patrons, maybe that would be one that we could cover for you guys. Oh, that would be a totally interesting one. So for the fifth time, I went back to the drawing board and started to research once again. I found another one, the case that we will be discussing today. And this one just kind of fell into my lap. So I figured it was meant to be. I didn't choose this case. I tried four other ones before this one. That's right. But with this one, I was able to find actual court documents... Which is rare. Oh, that is the best. It's like the golden little nugget when yeah. you find those court documents. As well as an interview with the killer himself. It's always so creepy to me when you hear their actual voice. Yeah, it makes it real. Like, oh, this is a real human yeah. being. This is a real live dirtbag who did this. There still isn't a ton of information on his background, but I did find some. But it's actually not even needed in this case because his motive for murder is good old-fashioned revenge. <gasps> I like the cases where they have a clear-cut motive that this is why they're doing it. He feels like he is totally justified in the murder that he commits. Even after he's convicted, he feels justified. Oh, yeah. To this day. Wow. Yeah. That's a confident dirtbag right there. That's right. He believes that his victim had it coming. Wow. Okay. Now I need to know what the victim did. (laughs) Okay. So William Michael Dennis was born in 1951. He went by Michael and his friends called him Mike. But I'll refer to him as Michael throughout this case. <laughs> That's because he's not your friend. He ain't my friend. So I ain't <laughs> calling you no Mike. You're Michael. I should have just called him William. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share the few things that I could find out about his childhood. Michael had suffered a significant hearing loss at some point, and he had to wear hearing aid. He learned to read lips, but because of the hearing loss, he started to stutter. Aww. His friend, Jim Perriott, said about the hearing aid, quote, that must have been tough with a hearing aid. And in those days, it was a big thing in your pocket and a wire. He didn't interact a lot. There wasn't a lot of conversation. But then I kind of giggled about this because I thought, I mean, now most kids have wireless earbuds. But before we had big things in our pockets <laughs> with the wires attached the to our ears, right? And the disc-mans. Yeah. For how many years have we actually been doing that? But this was before that time. So totally different though, when you get it to choose out. it over when you have to wear it all the time. That's right. When we can yeah. take it off for sure. According to court documents, he also suffered from depression and had trouble getting girlfriends. He said he was very shy with girls. In that interview with Michael that I mentioned, he tells the interviewer a bit about his childhood. He says, quote, in some ways it was good and in some ways it was bad. I kind of lived a normal childhood as far as my parents weren't poor but weren't rich. So they never went hungry and he never suffered any child abuse. At around age 10, he said he, quote, would end up getting fat. And I thought, It happens to the best of us, Michael. It does. We just suddenly end up getting fat. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Hormones. And he was also hard of hearing, so sometimes the kids would laugh and tease him. And he said, quote, more than the average kid would get teased. He would get into fist fights throughout grades five to eight, but he said he only threw the first punch once. The kids would pick on him, but he would wait until they hit him first. How long do you think it'll take us to realize we need to be nice to everybody? You can choose nice. Yeah. Michael's parents got divorced when he was nine and he had developed an eating disorder and this is what had caused him to gain weight. Michael said he liked school and got okay grades and did go on to junior college. However, the doctor that examined him during the murder trial believes that he was depressed and had attempted to take his life at one point. In January of 1972, at 21 years old, Michael met his future bride, Doreen Ray Hitchens, Doreen was born one year after Michael in 1952 to a close-knit family in Santa Clara, California. Doreen worked as a physical therapist in the Bay Area, and Michael worked at a nearby Lockheed factory as a sprayer. He would spray tiles used on space shuttles, which I thought was kind of cool. Oh, that is a cool job. Yeah. And this is how they met, by working close to one another. Oh, what? she's the victim. You're giving me her backstory. She's got to be the victim. <laughs> well, who do you want to take out revenge on the most? Your spouse, usually. <laughs> That's Right. right. When Michael met Doreen, he said she was the one. They got married in August of 1972, just eight months after meeting. Oh, that's quick. Yeah. So Michael was now 22 by the time they got married. Doreen soon gave birth to their son, Paul Dennis, and Michael was overjoyed to be a father. Michael said that Paul was a daddy's boy. Michael would get up with him every morning when he was a baby to give him his morning bottle, which created a bond between them. Doreen liked to sleep in and Michael liked to get up early, so it worked out nice. Oh, what a good dad. Yeah. Unfortunately, the couple divorced in 1977. Oh. Michael said they fought over finances. He liked to save and she liked to spend. He also said that Doreen had three affairs and that he had forgiven her each time. And he made sure to point out that he had no affairs. Ouch. Yikes. So he feels justified for what he's about to do. Oh, he really does. 100%. Oh. Doreen was granted custody of their son and it was highly unusual for a man to get custody of a child in the 70s when a couple divorced. So it was pretty normal for her to get custody. Yeah it didn't really matter which one was the better parent. In the 70s you went with the mom. Children belong with their mommy. Yeah. Michael was very involved though. He was able to still have visits with Paul but he remained really bitter about the divorce. Especially because he didn't think it was his fault. He just no. listed a whole bunch of reasons why it was her fault. Yeah, he just wanted to save money, she wanted to spend and have affairs. According to him. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say. According to him. That's yeah. his side of the story. And we all know that usually the truth lies somewhere in between each person's side of the story. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of this, because I was able to find that interview with him, a lot of it is his perspective, mm-hmm. which is good because that's what we're talking about is yeah. the motives. Like, why is he that's doing That's why that? he did so it. Having his perspective is great. That's what we want to talk well, about. And really, it doesn't matter what the actual facts are. He committed this crime based on his perception of what those facts were. Exactly. Exactly. Even if he had misconstrued them, those are still his reasons why he committed the crime. Yeah. These become his core beliefs. Yeah. They absolutely do. Michael said that Paul would run down the driveway to see him when he would go to pick him up from Doreen's house and was so happy to see his dad. Doreen moved on quickly after the divorce and married a local carpet store owner, Charles Herbert, Because she'd been dating while they were married. She might have because it said it was really quick. Yeah. They got married like right after the divorce. Well, you said she had three affairs. So she yeah. was already Allegedly playing in the field. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so this doesn't look good. No. Right? When he's accusing her of affairs and then she moves on really quick afterwards. Yeah. The two of them, Charles and Doreen, they had a daughter together in November of 1979 named Deanna and they raised her together with Paul. What's the math? Of oh, when they got married? Yeah because that sounded really no, quick to me. Cause, no they divorced in 1977. Yeah okay, so yeah. they remarried right after but didn't have the baby till 1979. Yeah she wasn't pregnant at the time. Okay. Michael lived only six blocks away from the now Herbert family which was about a six minute walk. During the interview I listened to, an interview by the way was Unforbidden Truth. It's another podcast, and that's where I found it. Michael claims that Doreen and Charles were taking drugs and that Charles was a cocaine addict and an alcoholic. He said that one of the reasons Doreen might have left him was because he was pressuring her to quit taking drugs. So again, I'm not sure if this is true or not. It's just what he said in his interview. And was there anything in the court documents that alleged that she was an addict or? No, there wasn't. But I don't know what there would be in the 70s. But again, this is what he believes at the time. This is what he believes. Yeah. Life would take a detrimental turn with rippling effects for all of those who were involved in February of 1980. Sadly, little three year old Paul would climb through the fence surrounding the family pool at the Herbert's property and drown. Oh no. Mm-hmm. This is what sets everything in motion. That is tragic. It's so tragic. Doreen was home at the time, but unfortunately did not notice until it was too late. Paul was taken to the hospital, but would never recover. Michael talks about this event in the interview and I will summarize for you what he said. He explained that he got visits once a week with his son. He would get him from about 10 a.m. to one thirty p.m. On the day that Paul drowned, Michael had him for his visit. They went shopping, they had lunch together at his house, and they played with the toys that he had given him for Christmas just months prior. He took Paul back to Doreen and Charles's house at 1 15 that day. Paul was upset and proceeded to have a temper tantrum. He didn't want to leave his dad. Michael had to physically pick Paul up and take him into the house because he was working swing shifts and he had to go to work. This was the last time that he would see his son alive. Oh, that is so sad. Yeah. Because you can just picture him like ripping him off of his body to leave him there. We've all had to do that with our kids, right? Where you're leaving them screaming and crying and he would just feel like if I hadn't left him. Yeah. So at 2:02 p.m., just 47 minutes after dropping off his son, Doreen would call the fire department for help. Doctors said that he was under the water for at least 20 minutes. So like right after he got dropped off. Yeah, like within 20 some minutes after dropping him off, Paul ends oh. up in the pool. Because it's just 47 minutes later, that call goes into the yeah. fire department. No wonder he couldn't be brought back. Yeah, no. Paul never did regain consciousness. Machines were breathing for him in the hospital. And after six days on that life support, Paul had a major heart attack. And the doctors said that he had no chance to live. So they took him off of the support. That is such a hard decision. Yeah. Michael said it was, quote, the worst moment of his life, having to let him go. Yeah. Which we can all imagine it would be. Paul drowned on February 7, 1980, and was pronounced dead six days later on February thirteenth. To say that Michael took a downward spiral after the death of his son would be a huge understatement. For the preceding years, Michael's life and health deteriorated. Michael was described as abnormally bitter and devastated. He was not handling it well. A year after the drowning, Michael ended up filing a wrongful death suit against Doreen and her husband. He felt Doreen was to blame. Ouch. I know. Your face, I looked at Melissa and she's just like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, it's really tragic this case. Well, that's like that other case that we were talking about where in the family suing each other. Sometimes you just have so much pain and grief that it has to find an outlet somewhere and sometimes it's not the best outlet. No. And he's just feeling like someone has to take responsibility. Yeah. Somebody has to be to blame. Yeah. It took two years, but the case went to trial in March of nineteen eighty-two. The jury voted nine to three that the Herberts were not at fault. It was deemed an accident and Michael lost his case. He said he was devastated and in shock that they did not hold Doreen responsible. Michael broke down in the courtroom and cried, quote, she got away with it. After the trial, Charles told Michael to stay away from their house and only saw him one more time at a public shopping center. So they basically cut off all ties with Michael after this. Well, after you see somebody, that's likely to happen. Yeah. So I'm curious, in his lawsuit against Doreen, did he say that she was just negligent or did he feel that she was malicious? We'll go into it. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. I got to know I'll... the answers now, Christy. I it's coming up quick though. Okay. You're <laughs> not going to have to wait long. <laughs> so needless to say, Michael could not accept this verdict and later said that he went insane over it. Hmm. He felt like Doreen should have to suffer for the drowning of their son. At the beginning of October in 1984, just weeks before the coming incident that would happen, Michael lost his sprayer position at work and had to take a pay cut to stay on as an employee. He went from 1353 an hour to 10.99 an hour, which was a significant cut amount for the 80s. It's a significant cut now, but yeah. even for the 80s, it would be even well, more so. That's when all that big stock market crash was going on, right? Well, no, they were going to fire him. Oh. Because his health and his mental health is deteriorating. He's not doing his job well anymore. He used to be a stand-up worker. And so this is kind of like a trigger to the event that's coming up. Oh, okay. So he had to step down from his sprayer position and take a pay cut, but they were willing. They probably felt sorry for him and we're going to yeah. still give him a job, but we can't pay you and let you do what you're doing because you're spiraling. Yeah. But what a testament to how bad that spiral was then. That his yeah, employer he like, even, we can't even keep you on. No. So he's already down and out. He's already feeling like he's going insane over it. He's fixating over it. He thinks she got away with it. And now he's at risk of losing his job. And in order to stay on, he had to take a pay cut and do a different job. Just demoralizing, right? Yeah. Michael says that he was talking to a co-worker one day about everything. And the coworker allegedly said that maybe Doreen wanted Paul dead. Michael said at that moment, everything clicked for him. Of course she wanted him dead. Oh, no. So this is where it would take a turn because he went from her just being negligent to like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Maybe she wanted him dead. Of course she did. And then you would just find evidence, like every little thing that she did, he would believe that that was it. Because when we're looking for evidence, we're going to find it. Yeah, whatever you look for, we find. Yeah. Right. If you're looking for the negative, you're going to find it. If you look for the good, you're going to find that. So he truly believes to this day that his ex-wife murdered their son at first he thought it was negligence but then he realized quote-unquote that it was on purpose i'll summarize michael's statements regarding the death and the trial so here's your answers okay there were three main reasons why he filed the civil suit so this is when he was thinking she was just being negligent and stuff so first he claimed that he asked Doreen for pictures of paul but she wouldn't even let him get copies made of the photographs second paul died early february Yet Doreen wouldn't give back the unused portion of child support that he had paid for that month. What? Mm-hmm. And I think he's just hurting. Yeah. Right. So he drowned on February 7th, 7th. and she's not going to share pictures. And then yep. so he's lashing out. Well, then I want the Tip for rest tab. of the, yeah, the three weeks worth of child support that yep. I paid you. Why wouldn't she give him know. pictures? I don't know. That's I don't cruel. Know. That's a dirtbag move. And this is, yeah, this is Michael's opinion. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe so, she just hadn't gone but, around to it. Maybe she was still grief struck yeah. Could be. It had taken two years to go to trial. Oh, so even by that time, even she, by still that hadn't time she still him hadn't given So I think there's probably some truth move. to this. Yeah. Yeah. And then he keeps saying that she would not grant him a simple burial request, but I don't know what that request was, but oh, she would grant him some simple burial request. So there was some disagreement over their son's burial. Yeah. So he went to an attorney and the attorney suggested that he sue. He said it is what any parent would do if their child drowned while in someone else's care. He fixated on the fact that the fence around the pool was in disrepair. This was during his original lawsuit. Correct. Okay. Apparently in 1978, two years prior to Paul drowning, Doreen's dog had drowned in the pool. And this made Michael insist that Doreen and her husband put up a fence around the pool so that Paul would be safe. He said it took them three months to finally put it in, even though he offered to help pay for it. And at the time of Paul's death, the fence gate wasn't working properly. Oh, and so that's how he got into the backyard. That's how he got into the pool. You think he'd be so much more safer if you'd already lost your pet yeah. to drowning? Yeah. He would you be would be hyper paranoid were... about anything going near that pool. Right. And according to him, like he's saying that they're drug addicts and they're, he's an alcoholic mm. and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if that's true or not. Right. But you can see how this is building in Michael. Well, how the story's forming in his mind for right. sure. Right. Yeah, so he begins to believe that Paul didn't accidentally fall into the pool. He thinks Doreen pushed him in. Oh, that's a big jump. Mm -hmm. When asked why, he said because of all the reasons he sued her, because she was being difficult about all that stuff, and because she left him in the water for so long, and then went to go get a neighbor to retrieve him from the pool instead of doing it herself. He seemed to hyper-focus on this part. He repeated multiple times that, quote, She wouldn't even jump into her own pool to save her son. He just kept saying it. And she could swim. He knew that she knew how to swim and she could touch the bottom of the pool while standing in the water without going under. But she went and got a neighbor to get him from the pool. Oh, shock does a lot of crazy things, right? It totally does. He also thinks she was suffering from postpartum depression at the time. Her daughter had been born only about 10 weeks prior and he believes that she was upset with Paul for being a daddy's boy and for having a temper tantrum over Michael dropping him off that day. Oh, that's believable actually. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. No. That is a hard one. Right. Who and he knows? lost he lost that trial, right? They deemed it as an accident that she was not responsible at all. These are ideas that he's having after that trial is already over, right? Because right. before he thought she was only negligent and now he's thinking that she actually did it on purpose. That's crazy though. Mhm.
1: Like you can he see does how
0: he's beginning to believe these things. Yeah, like it does sound like it's a believable story. When my brother was, I think he was four at the time, he fell in a pond, like a frozen pond. He was playing on the ice oh. and him and a friend went through the ice and into the water. And my mom did not second guess. Like she was in, she dragged him out and then she fought to pull the other kid out. And so I'm trying to envision in my head, why would a mother not jump in after her child? Yeah. Why would you go get a neighbor? But shock would explain it. Or if she really did have postpartum depression, that is such a sad, sad mental illness. And maybe that would have played into it. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe the neighbor was right in the backyard. Maybe she was just yelling. Maybe she panicked. She froze. Yeah. Yelled at the neighbor. And like, I, we don't know if she yeah. went to the door, if the neighbor was there. Like, we don't know those details. But That's you can see how just... Michael would be twisting this in his head. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a horrific thing. That it's occurred, so like, horrific, that whole thing. But you can totally and... see where he is going with this in his mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just building. He's not getting the help that he needs to get over it. And all these little things just keep adding and adding and adding. Michael claims that by finding Doreen not responsible, the jury did to him what they would never want done to them. He says, quote, his loss was absolutely nothing. That's just terrible. That's not justice by any figment of the human imagination because what that does is it changes the death of Paul. Oh, so you can see how he's going to build into, look, somebody else could have helped me, but they're not helping me. So now I have to take matters into my own hand. Right. He's hurting and he wants someone to care. According to Michael, Doreen wouldn't do anything to help heal his pain for losing his son, so his pain just got worse. And they did. They totally cut him out. You know, if someone takes you to court, then that's probably what you're going to do. It's still a dirtbag move not to share pictures. It really That's is. cruel. That is cruel. He felt that the jury was to blame, too, for not finding her guilty. He said they refused to grow in a way that made common sense. And if he didn't lose that trial, he would have gone on with his life and likely remarried. He says he was angry and went stir-crazy over it, and that is why he murdered his ex-wife. That's a whole lot of laying blame at other people's feet. Yeah, it definitely is. He's not thinking rationally. No. So you were right. Spoiler alert, not a spoiler alert. He does kill his ex-wife. I'm always right. Such a good guesser. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were only two characters in this story. <laughs> and as you introduced the first one as the murderer, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of options. <laughs> You're not going to be like, oh, does he murder his neighbor? (laughs) His old school teacher? Who does he need revenge on? (laughs) I need to feel smart wherever I can get it. (laughs) You are. Melissa is one of my smartest friends. Okay, but I am going to warn you that the actual murder is extremely brutal. I struggled with what do I keep in, what do I keep out, and I left a lot of the brutality in, so I'm sorry. So if that's not for you, I'm sorry, but you're listening to Two Crimes, so it probably is for you. I personally like the details because I don't know why I like that. Maybe I'm just messed up. Well, I think it really, it brings it to life, right? Because we can hear like someone was murdered, but then to hear like what he actually does shows just how horrific it was. Well, and two, I think that the method that murderers use actually goes into their motives. We know that like if somebody is bludgeoned to death or beat to death, repeatedly stabbed, and there's usually emotion behind that. Where if it's just like a single gunshot, then typically that's not as personal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because if you're stabbing someone, you're getting up close and personal with them. Yeah. And that's usually a passionate type of murder. That's right. And so hearing the details, I find, is what actually tells part of the story. Yeah. But the details definitely aren't for some people. So if you have to, you can mute it for a minute. Skip ahead. Yeah. And these cases, I think this is why I like the cases that have these motives behind them is because how these normal people go from being, you know, just your everyday person to being a dirtbag. Yeah. And his was a gradual unhinging, I believe. Mm -hmm. So it could happen to any one of us. Absolutely could. And that's why I said his backstory, even though I was able to find some stuff, didn't really matter in this case. So I know we, a lot of times we'll call people like, oh, they're dirtbags," and we are judgmental in that way. But we do it with a full understanding that really like a case like this could happen to anybody. Oh, it totally could. Yeah. Actually, I went for a walk with my sister the other day and it was super late at night. It was getting dark and it was like a nice tree little area. Every time I go to her house, we walk through it because it's a beautiful mm. little park. But it was getting dark. And for the first time, I was like actually getting scared. And I was thinking, do you know who lurks in the trees at night? <laughs> Now you know what my life is like all the time. <laughs> well, I'm not usually, but I was actually I was like, okay we should head back now. <laughs> That's usually me. Walking to your car late at night through a parking lot creeps me out every time. Oh really? Wow. I was scared, even though my sister owns her own Taekwondo school and she could <laughs> like literally murder someone with her body. <laughs> so I was like, Oh I'm glad I'm with her. She needs to come and walk with me all the time. <laughs> That's right. She could start a business. <laughs> That's right. During that walk with my sister, I said to her. Well, Melissa's going to have to cover this case on her own because I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) So if I get murdered, you can cover my case. I give you permission. No way. (laughs) All right. Well, with all of that, I guess enough joking. We'll get into the actual murder. But like Melissa said, if there's ever any time that you don't want to listen to the details, you don't have to. And so... When I get to the part where he comes up to the front door, it gets brutal right from that. So if you wanted to skip a couple seconds, then you could. A couple seconds, a couple minutes, just yeah. skip ahead. Yeah. The choice is always yours. That's right. Okay, so Michael chose October 31st, Halloween night, to viciously murder his ex-wife Doreen, the woman who he believed had murdered his son. It was later discovered that he originally had a different plan on how to murder Doreen and her new husband. <gasps> Originally, Michael was going to drown the couple so that they could experience what Paul had gone through. So just like you said, there's a reason why they choose the way that they're going to do it. Later, police found two wooden coffins with locks attached to them that Michael had made, two hand-stitched body bags, and two anchors. So he was going to kidnap them, lock them in the homemade wooden coffins, and drop them into the bay to sink. He had spent some time thinking about this. Oh, he was stewing. Wow. He was doing big time. He made coffins. Right. Oh and my so goodness. later the defense tries to say it wasn't premeditated, but hundred oh. percent it was premeditated. This night maybe not. He was triggered for this night, but he was planning to murder her and her husband Charles. And just how creepy wow. later for the police to find these two coffins and hand sewn body bags. And then he even had the anchors, like it was ready to go. <laughs> Sorry, but he sewn body bags? Yeah, hand stitched body bags. Well, no wonder he was slacking off at work if he was building coffins and body (laughs) bags at home. That's right. Holy cow. So some people would speculate that seeing other little kids trick-or-treating that night may have been the triggering factor to why he changed his mind. He likely fixated on Paul not being there to trick-or-treat while he saw all the other children trick-or-treating. That would be so sad. And that would be really hard after losing a child. Any holiday after losing anybody is difficult, but yeah, yeah, that would be especially hard. Yeah, because Halloween is all about the kids. So at 6 o'clock p.m. that frightful Halloween night, Michael ate dinner with his mother. His mother lived like an apartment behind his house type of a thing. Okay. Took a piece of mail to the neighbor, told the neighbor he was going to a Halloween party, and then instead of sticking to his plan, Michael put on a wolf mask that he had worn the previous Halloween to a party, put on gloves, grabbed his 18-inch machete, and started towards Doreen's house. Oh, no. And so it kind of looked like a, a big bad wolf mask is what it reminded me of. Well, and you could totally carry a weapon on Halloween and nobody would bat an eye. Yeah, it was Halloween, so he didn't look suspicious at all. He could have on gloves and a wolf mask and be carrying a machete. People would think the machete was... Just part of the costume. Yeah, they didn't know it was real. And he just could walk those six blocks right to her house. Oh, I think I'll have a different perspective of walking past everybody's costumes this Halloween. I know, Halloween's coming up. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> So meanwhile, at the Herbert's home that night, Doreen had taken her four-year-old daughter, who would be a similar age now as Paul when he had died, Deanna, out trick-or-treating, while her husband Charles stayed home and handed out candy. He had taken her out first, but saved a few houses for Doreen to take her to so she wouldn't miss out. And the reason was, was because Doreen was eight months pregnant at the time. Oh, dear. So I imagine it would have been hard for her to take her daughter around the entire night. But her being eight months pregnant makes this murder especially horrific. Oh, that is awful. Yeah. So I'm sorry, you guys. It's going to get worse than you thought it would. And I'm thinking, too, like, I wonder if he was thinking at the time, like, look, there she is taking her child out. Like, she gets to still experience that... Joy of trick-or-treating with her child and he has no child. Yeah, and her daughter Deanna would be around the same age, really close to the same age as Paul was when he passed away. That would be a huge trigger. So Doreen had reportedly experienced two miscarriages before getting pregnant with her soon-to-be son. The boy was due in early November, so soon after Halloween, and everyone in her life was excited and overjoyed about it. So she was more than eight months pregnant then. If he was due early November and it's already the end of October, that's like only a couple weeks away. Eight and a half. Yeah, she would have been closer to eight and a half months. So she's almost full term. She's almost full term. Wow. Yeah. Oh dear, I don't know if I can do this. Sorry. This case chose me. I didn't choose it. I tried four other cases before (laughs) this one, so... (laughs) Doreen's sister said that Doreen was under 5 feet tall, so she was, quote, as far out as she was high. Okay. There's pictures of her pregnant, and she looks like she's ready to have this baby any day type Aww. of a thing. Yeah. Michael reportedly had no idea that she was pregnant, since they had cut off all communications after the civil suit. When Doreen returned home with Deanna, Charles left the house to go purchase more candy and to stop at the liquor store. It was estimated that Charles was only gone for approximately 15 minutes. But that was all the time that Michael needed. Oh, no. Around 9 o'clock p.m., Michael walks up to the Herberts' house and aggressively knocks on the door. Thinking it is a trick-or-treater, Doreen opens the door with her little girl by her side. Oh, I never even thought about that. that. It's Halloween. Yeah, you it... just open your door to anybody. Yeah, and oh, if they're wearing no. a mask and holding a knife, they're trick-or-treating. So she opens the door and Michael says to Doreen, you killed my boy. I'm going to kill you. So he wanted her to know that it was him. Oh. Doreen yells at her daughter to hide, and little Deanna runs and hides behind the couch. Michael stabs Doreen with the machete, and his hand slips up the blade, cutting his hand quite badly. This causes him to start slashing her all over instead, so more of like a hacking motion. Doreen sustained multiple wounds, mainly to her head, neck, and abdomen. Oh no. As Michael hacks at Doreen, her unborn baby falls out from inside of her and lands on the floor a few feet away from where they were standing. Michael later said that he had no idea that she was pregnant until he saw the fetus hit the floor. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, she was very noticeably pregnant, but she opened the door and, and he, just he just started. He had that six minute walk over. He was just worked up and ready to go. How brutal is that hacking that he's cut her uterus open? Oh, yeah. That is... Oh, that's gross. Yeah. When I talk about the autopsy report, we'll go into a little bit more of that, like exactly what happens. But the the shock and horror, this baby falls out of her onto the floor as he's hacking at her. During the attack, Michael completely severed Doreen's left hand. It would be found on the floor next to her son, whose leg had also been severed during the attack. The severed hand would indicate that she was likely trying to protect herself. According to a report entered at trial, Doreen lay on the floor struggling to breathe, and Michael says to her, quote, how does it feel to drown? Oh, because she's drowning in her own blood. Yep, she was struggling. They spoke for about 60 seconds before she finally blacked out. Michael would later say that he thinks he hacked her about 20 times, but he wasn't sure. Michael takes off his mask, throws it on the floor, and walks away. And even I was thinking him walking away full of blood, they would just think it's a costume. He could walk right down the street. It wouldn't raise any suspicions at all. And what about that little girl? She's hiding behind the couch and she does peek out. Oh no. Mm -hmm. Soon after the brutal attack, Charles returns home from the store because remember he was only gone 15 minutes. He noticed that the door was left unlocked. When he enters, he sees his wife in the entryway bleeding profusely. He begins to run towards her and he slips in the massive amount of blood, getting blood all over himself. Next, he sees the fetus on the floor, and at first he thinks Doreen has miscarried until he also sees the injuries sustained to his wife along with her severed hand. Charles tries to call 911 but cannot get through, so he calls the fire department along with a neighbor. How come he couldn't get through to 911? It's California. What? Because at first I thought it was weird she called the fire department when yeah. Paul drowned, but it says he couldn't get through, so he called the fire department. It seems so surreal to us. It does. We live in Canada and never would we get a busy signal on 911, especially in remote areas. Yeah, that's crazy. We we take that for granted, I think. Mm -hmm. So Charles tries to stop the bleeding and then notices that their daughter is hiding behind the couch. He scoops her up and puts her in the kitchen so she won't witness any more horror. Deanna tells him that she heard the baby cry and that mommy said, Michael. Paramedics arrived and Charles continued to help them try to stop his wife's bleeding. The neighbor that Charles had called came and took little Deanna to sit in the car while all the mayhem ensued. Police arrived and instead of allowing Charles to go in the ambulance with his wife, they arrested him. He was covered in blood and his breath smelled of alcohol. Oh no. He had gone to the liquor store to get more, right? They locked him in a patrol car, handcuffed. He was outraged and began screaming and kicking at the car's windows. Sadly, Doreen would die in the ambulance while en route to the hospital. They would pronounce her dead upon arrival. But if you were the cop going into that situation, you would assume the same thing. Oh, that's just a hundred percent. And a death of a pregnant woman is usually It's usually always, an intimate partner. Yep. Yeah, usually always the boyfriend, the husband. Yeah. Police gathered blood samples, but at the time they could only determine blood type, not DNA. The crime scene was one of the worst that first responders in that area had ever witnessed. An expert on blood splatter testified that the blood splatter in the entryway, on a stool that had a jack-o'-lantern on it, the front door, and the ceiling were all velocity stains. The blood on the upper walls and the ceiling were most likely spray caused as the weapon was raised into the air after striking Doreen. The front door and the eight-foot ceiling in the entrance also had slash marks in it. So he was just (gasps) hacking so hard and his arms were flailing that it was hitting the ceiling and the door... It was just a He wasn't massacre. even just stabbing her. He was oh, just going insane. Yeah. And he would have had to raise his arm way back behind him to hit the door, bring it forward to slash the ceiling and then land it on her. Oh my so goodness. So he was putting all his effort into it. Police found the wolf mask in the corner of the front porch area. About the crime scene, Jamie Saldivar, a former San Jose police officer who worked the case, said that the first officer to arrive at the scene said over the radio to the other officers to kick it up because something was really wrong. His voice was shaking, even though he was a seasoned officer. He continued to say that it was gut-wrenching. It looked like something out of a Stephen King movie. Halloween night, jack-o'-lanterns lit all the way up the stairs, and then inside where the body was, there was two inches of thick coagulated blood everywhere. He remembers his boot sticking to the blood. He recalls that blood splatter was everywhere. Everything was red, and apparently the smell was horrendous. What we put our first responders through, like we, I don't think we've ever talked about that, but it's horrific for the victims that lived, but these first responders that are the first ones on the scene, they go home to their families and have to process these memories somehow. So how horrific for those police officers on that scene. Yeah. And then because it didn't happen to them, they just have to kind of go along with their life, but they still viewed it all. Absolutely. And it's difficult. And even as a seasoned officer, he's saying it was one of the worst, That's one of the worst they'd ever seen. Some of the first responders actually quit their jobs over this both fire and paramedics yeah they did receive therapy but this officer says that there was no ptsd treatment then we're more aware of ptsd now but there's not a fix-all for it and so so many first responders have ongoing effects from the cases or the the calls that they go to and it's something that i don't think we ever or most people don't even think about no we don't yeah it's some of those other victims that you never associate for sure when asked about the murder, Michael said he didn't intend to hurt a child, and he wouldn't have killed her if he knew she was pregnant because he wouldn't kill someone innocent. He might have waited. He points out that in some cultures, however, it isn't illegal to kill for certain reasons, and they can kill without jail time. He said, quote, I'm a good person. A doctor who examined Michael during the investigation would say that he had become delusional that he had suffered a major depressive episode over his son's death that led to a dependent personality disorder. He definitely had a skewed view of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But you know what I thought was interesting too? Michael claims... That he didn't see color during the attack. He just saw black and white. Oh, so he had a total break. They lose their senses. So they don't have any sense of smell, sense of taste. Really? Um, All the stuff that they hear and they see is super, super dull. It's incredible how your mental health affects your physical health. Oh, yeah. Kind of like the fight and flight, right? Where all the blood stops from your major organs and goes to your limbs and extremities so that you can run and fight. Yeah. So when we have these situations where you're in such a a state or a mental state, it can shut off your senses. So I can totally believe that he only saw black and white. Yeah. Authorities detained Charles, Doreen's husband, for questioning and spoke to the Herberts' neighbors. It did not take long for police to learn about the trouble Doreen and Charles had with Michael and about Paul's death. So police immediately go to Michael's house. They look through the window of his truck on the driveway and see blood on the steering wheel and key and the gear shift knob. And I'm assuming that he got in the truck to get rid of the weapon because he had walked over there. So that's the only thing I could think of because they never find the weapon. And so I'm assuming that's how he got blood in the truck. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They knock on the door, but no answer, even though they could see lights on and hear water running. Hearing water made them worry that evidence was being flushed or washed down the drain. So police had county communications phone Michael and inform him that police were at his door and that he was instructed to answer it. We have to remember this is early eighties now, right? I guess it's better than them breaking down the door and going in without a warrant or anything like that, and then all the evidence gets thrown out because it wasn't collected properly. But I never even thought of that. Like they call, it's basically they called the operator. Yeah, (laughs) they called (laughs) county communications and said we need you to call this guy and tell him to answer his door that police are outside. Wow. And Michael complies. After they call him, he answers the door wearing a robe, and his hand was all bandaged but bleeding through the bandages. Police tell Michael about his ex-wife's murder and he seems unfazed. They ask him about the bandages on his hand and he tells police he accidentally cut his hand while playing with a knife. You know how people will sometimes like throw it up in the air and try and catch it? That's what he says he was doing. Oh no. Police ask if they can look around and Michael tells them, sure, he has nothing to hide. He's definitely not thinking straight at this point. No, police find blood basically everywhere and arrest Michael. Further investigation would find a receipt for a machete with an 18 inch blade along with the homemade coffins in his garage. So they never found the machete but they found the receipt. Michael denied murdering Doreen and despite the evidence he was released after 48 hours. They didn't have enough to hold him. They didn't have enough evidence. Nope. Circumstantial I guess. Well and they don't have like all the like they're testing the blood but he says he cut his hand. How do they know that's not his blood all over the house? right? I don't know. That's pretty sketchy. Yeah, but don't worry. They let him go after 48 hours, but soon after, the blood evidence comes back as a match to Michael's blood type at the crime scene. So he was arrested again on November 5th, 1984. And they probably kept him under surveillance. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Police could also connect the wolf mask left at the crime scene to Michael. So I don't know if they found hair or what it was, but... Or another receipt... He probably bought it at the same time he bought the machete. No, because he actually used this mask, the Halloween previous, for a party. Oh, that's right. And they had actually, I didn't have this in here, but they had interviewed some of his friends and different people. And one there of were the ladies... Pictures. There was. You can look online, him wearing mm-hmm. the mask at a party. Because this one girl is like, um, yeah, he wore that last Halloween. And they were like, do you have any photos? And she was like, um, yep, yeah, here you go. Oh. And so there's this picture of him partying in this mask, just the Halloween before. Which, again, actually shows some forethought because had Doreen seen him on the other side of the door, she probably wouldn't open the door. But because he was wearing this Halloween mask, she probably didn't think about it. Oh, for sure. And he could walk right there. Michael's case went to trial in July 1988, so almost four years after the murder. His defense argued that the killings were from mental illness and were not deliberate or premeditated. But then how do you explain the machete receipt or the coffins in his garage? So... You can commit a crime and still have premeditation, but not be legally sane while you're doing all of that preparation. True. Sure. Because there have been cases like that, especially when it comes to like domestic violence, where the victim plans the abuser's death and they're not found guilty by reason of insanity because they were so victimized. And I think it's really a case by case type of situation. Yeah. But I just don't think the two of them go hand in hand. Like we think that, oh, because there was premeditation, then he must not be insane. Oh, and I think he absolutely had an insane episode while this was happening. This was overkill, overboard what he did to her. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have still killed them because he had this premeditation going on. Right. And I think he would have killed them. He was planning, right? He was going to kidnap them and put them in the coffins and let them drown. Yeah. But I guess the question is, is how long can an insane episode last? Yeah. Good point. Could he have been insane this whole time that he was planning and building these coffins and sewing these body bags? Like, could he have actually been insane that whole time? Yeah. Well, healthcare professionals called him delusional. Yeah. He definitely was delusional this whole time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the defense also relied on presenting friends and associates of Michael to testify to his good character. And Michael never testified himself. They rarely do, actually. Mm -hmm. The prosecution argued that Michael was not psychotic and his mental condition was not an extreme mental or emotional disturbance. It would not qualify as mitigating circumstance. During the trial, the doctor who performed the autopsy testified. He stated that Doreen died from multiple chopping wounds that resulted in a sanguination, so she bled to death. The wounds were made with a weapon that was able to cut cleanly through soft tissue and into bone, which matches the machete. There is an entire page of injuries listed in Doreen's autopsy report, and I will list a few. So numerous deep wounds to the right side of her head, some fracturing her skull, and one penetrated two inches into her brain. Like I already stated, her left hand was severed just above the wrist. She had multiple wounds on her shoulders and a cut in her scapula. The head of the humerus was severed. Her chest had stab wounds. Her thighs had long, deep wounds consistent with chopping. There was a long, gaping wound on her right thigh that penetrated bone and fractured the femur. Those are really big bones to chop through. Yeah, and it just shows the strength and the the exuberance of what he was doing. Wow. Wow. That's that's why there was so much splatter and all those extra cuts and just blood everywhere. That's brutal force to chop through a femur. Yeah, that's insane. She had a nine inch and a five inch cut to her abdomen, among many others. Her stomach and large bowels had been cut open along with her uterine wall. Her placenta was cut and the umbilical cord had been cut as well. The fetus sustained just as horrific injuries, but I figured I won't detail those. No, do yeah. Only that one of the cuts stopped his heart in circulation, and that's how he technically had died. However, it was reported that he could have lived if delivered properly that day. There was speculation if the baby took a breath or not, which would determine if he was a baby or a fetus according to law. Well, the four-year-old said that he cried. The report, however, suggested that he didn't take a breath. Oh. Even though Deanna had thought she heard him cry. Mm-hmm. They said there was no air in the lungs. Eyewitness accounts aren't the greatest. No, especially when you're four. Yeah. Deanna was now eight years old and testified at her mother's murder trial. She remembered Michael threatening to come back and kill her if she told anyone that it was him. Neighbors testified that they saw a man in a wolf mask just before the time of the murder walking down the street. But again, it was Halloween. You wouldn't think anything weird. Mm-hmm. There were reports of Michael's injuries on his hand. They were deep and had severed nerves, tendons, and the volar plate, consistent with what one would expect from stabbing someone with a large blade, so the hand can slide up the blade in a thrusting motion. So he cut his hand really well. And then to carry on. And that's when he realized, oh, I got a hack instead of stab. Wow. Mm -hmm. Along with the blood match, the police had found Michael's hair at the crime scene. Ultimately, Michael ended up pleading guilty to first degree murder of Doreen and second degree murder for the death of her unborn fetus. When he was let out of the courtroom, he turned to Doreen's family and said, good night. So no remorse because he feels justified that she got... 100% feels justified. What about that baby though? Basically collateral damage. He doesn't say that, but Yeah. yeah. So William Michael Dennis was sentenced to die in the gas chamber and was sent to spend his remaining days on death row. He is actually still alive, awaiting death on death row at San Quentin Prison. In his interview, Michael said that he wants a retrial because his attorney didn't tell them that he was a good person and had no prior record. He said the attorney was basically the DA's helper and never tried to really help him. He says he lost a child, and that's worse than being told you're going to death row. He claims that he tried to get the justice system to handle things, but that didn't work. He even had to pay the medical bills. The justice system only made his life worse, not better. He also points out that he doesn't agree that he is delusional. But didn't that just make you angry when they're like, oh, it was everybody else's problem. It was everybody else's fault why I did this. Right. No personal accountability whatsoever. No, but he thinks he was justified. He's still delusional. He still is. It always surprises me how long it takes for the justice system to actually follow through on sentencing when it's an execution. But then I was like, oh, maybe that's a good thing because that other guy was executed wrongfully. That's true. But this is like in the mid 80s. That's a long time to feed somebody that's going to die anyway. Right. And he actually talks about that. Oh, really? He does. Yeah. You are on point today, girl. <laughs> it's the cookies. <laughs> oh. I need to have cookies every day before we record. Well, I was thinking maybe that's a cruel thought. <laughs> actually, my mom and I were just having that conversation and she's talking about all the money wasted Yeah, while they sit on death row. About being on death row, Michael said that taxpayer money is being used for him to sit and rot in prison instead of being used for better things. And he talks about like, it can be used for potholes. So does he agree now that he should be put to death? No. So this is what he says. Okay. So the jury that found his wife not responsible for their son's death are only hurting themselves as their tax money is being wasted. Oh my goodness. He is a little weird. Mm-hmm. Like that's a weird thought process. He is listening to him. He is so passionate and he just totally believes this 100%. And he said, quote, okay, I committed a crime. But I was hurting so badly because not only did she hurt my son, the justice system also hurt me in return, and nobody is any better for what they decided to do. Michael said that on his first day of death row, he just kind of looked around. He was in a little cell, and it was really noisy, and there was nothing to do. He said he didn't feel scared because he felt like he would get his case overturned. But now he's worried that that might not happen. <laughs> 30 years later, he's yeah. starting to doubt. <laughs> right. But then he points out, and I don't know if this is true, just in his statement, he says, well, no, it's I'm- actually almost 40 years. Sorry. Yeah, it is closer to 40, it's 40 years. years. Close to 40 years. Yeah. Because it was 84. Yeah. yeah. It's almost 40. What the heck is he still doing alive? <laughs> so now he's like, well, maybe it's not going to happen anymore. <laughs> I was hoping so, but now I'm a little scared, that still delusional. Yeah. But then he points out, and like I said, I don't know if this is true or not, but he says no one else has gotten the death penalty for killing the killer of their child. So he doesn't think it should happen to him either. So Michael says he wants an advocate to help him. He says he is a good person, a kind person, and he shouldn't be put to death. He went through the worst thing a human can go through and all the jury had to do was be fair. So meaning the civil suit against his wife. He seemed angry still and did not seem remorseful at all. And this interview was just this past December. Wow. So this is current. He's had forty years to think about this, <laughs> and he still yeah. Timeout isn't working on this one. Sorry, not that you're going to get over the death of your child, but you think forty years would give you lots of time to reflect on maybe this wasn't the best course of action for you right. to take. But if you wholeheartedly believe that she pushed your son into the water for being a daddy's boy and getting on her nerves and whatever else, yeah, he believes he's justified. What extreme would you go if someone did murder your child? What extreme? What type of revenge would you be willing to take? Yeah, that's That's a rhetorical question, you guys. (laughs) I would know. (laughs) I already know what most of it do. Don't cross her. Some of us have a temper. It's not always the redhead. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good and kind, like Michael. (laughs) No, I'm not like Michael. I take that back. (laughs) Michael's friend that I quoted at the beginning of the case about the hearing aid, he said that Michael has the best possible situation in death row. He gets out of his cell for six hours a day. He can hang out with 12 other inmates. They can play basketball. He gets to go for runs. They watch TV and sporting events together. He notes that it took him 10 years of perfect behavior to get on the list to get into that situation that he is now. So he's living a good life on death row. That just seems wrong, right? It doesn't seem fair. Okay, so think of like a homeless guy or a veteran who doesn't have anywhere to live and is struggling. Yeah. And then Michael gets this great life inside prison. Like, yeah, he's in prison, but he's hanging out with his buddies. He gets to go for a run. They watch sporting events. He has a cook and a maid. Hey, what could I do to get jailed just for a month? (laughs) Like, not a bad idea. I would like a cook and a maid. Right? And you could just like sleep and read books and... And then hang out with your friends for six hours and then they would go away. (laughs) Yeah, exercise and just nap. Yeah, someone cooks for you. They do the dishes afterwards. We better edit this part out or else we'll be convincing people to commit crimes. Yeah. Don't use this against us later if something happens. (laughs) So Michael's friend also says that all of this destroyed Michael's life and those around him. He has never heard him say that he was sorry for what he did to Doreen. So even his friend has never heard him say that. He thinks Michael deeply feels that he was obligated to kill her for murdering his son. That he had to avenge his son's death. You hear that a lot from other victims, family members, that they just need to make it better. Yeah. He or, was not going to get over this until someone had to pay, till she had to pay. And the courts didn't find her responsible, so he had to do it himself. How much more does that say about the victim's families? Then that can go on to forgive. Yeah. And this is a case that probably, most likely, was an accident. Oh, with Paul. Yeah. And so he can't forgive. Well, and you're right on the money, because wait. Okay. So Michael's cousin says that he would love to see him free. He says he's not a serial killer, not a psychopath, and only went insane for a short time. He wishes he could be more honest and strong like his cousin. He says if the drowning didn't happen, he would never have killed anyone. And do you think that's true? Would Michael have turned into a ruthless killer if his son had never died in such a tragic way? Without that catalyst event? Probably not. No. Listeners, what do you think? Go to our Facebook page and tell us. What do you think about this case? Yeah. And again, I think it could happen to anybody. It's just that one event. That that one triggering traumatic event changes your world. Yeah. So the officer that I quoted earlier during the actual event, he is quoted again. And this is what he said. Quote, kill him. Completely useless to society. And I'll take one step further. This garbage about the death penalty. If anyone got to see those crime scene photos, I don't see how one person with common sense wouldn't say execute that guy. Execute him now. He shouldn't even be breathing the air that we are breathing right now. He has no value to society whatsoever. Life in prison without parole? That's crap. This guy needs to go. He needs to die. Period. Those are strong words, but it's hard not to feel that way. And if you had saw that dismembered, unborn baby. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Little four-year-old hiding behind the couch during all this. Two inches of blood everywhere. The whole house was red. And his colleagues and people are quitting their jobs over this. So then that's affecting their lives too. Yeah. I can see why he Mm -hmm. would say that. So before we end, just a little update. So Charles and Deanna, so Doreen's husband and daughter, and it's funny that you had talked about forgiveness because they say that they have forgiven Michael for (sighs) their own peace of mind. Charles said in 2016, quote, I want him to know we survived and we're making it. He hasn't conquered us. Oh, what a good attitude and what a difference in paths that you can choose. Yeah, he had his wife and unborn baby, horrifically murdered, and he didn't take the same path that Michael did. That's right. We always have choices. So about Doreen, Charles said, quote, Oh, she was an angel. When she smiled and laughed, you couldn't help not loving her. She was always giving. So Deanna is now an adult, the little girl who was four years old at the time. She says she pushes herself every day, and the harder it feels, the harder she pushes herself. She can't sit around feeling sorry for herself because that is no life. And I will note that she did receive therapy for her experience during the murder. And so again, we go back to that: you always have a choice. Like she's not saying it's easy, no. But every day she makes a choice to keep going. And because she received therapy, she doesn't have to do it alone, right? Yep. You can choose to get help, and that's a choice to move on and to recover instead of doing what Michael did and oh, definitely, and going down the wrong path, definitely. Doreen's father, before he passed away in 2007, said that his daughter's murder ruined his entire life and that he would kill Michael Dennis if he ever saw him outside of prison. Doreen's mother said she'd gladly hire someone to kill him if he got out. So I'll end with a quote from Lloyd Lacusta, who is a former KYTU reporter. And he said, quote, the only thing I'd like to say about this crime is that it's an example of how there are people out there who cannot cope who suddenly face some type of adversity or something happens in their life that the only answer that they seek is to wreak vengeance on someone. And I just thought that that was well said. Very well said. And just a testimony of the importance of teaching resiliency. Absolutely. And he does go on in his quote, I didn't share the whole thing, but to talk about if you see someone struggling, help. Yes try to help. Or if you are struggling, ask for help. Yeah. So sad. So many lives ruined because of one tragic event. Everybody has traumatic experiences and have things that we have to go through. And it is up to us to choose. Do we fight like Deanna did? And you fight and you go through and you give forgiveness for your own peace of mind? Mm -hmm. Or do you go down a path like Michael and choose revenge? Yeah. And it was a slippery slope. He didn't have anyone really, you know, to help him through this. That's Mm -hmm. sad. We've never been in those situations and I wouldn't want to ever think or portray that that's an easy thing to do because it's not. Mm -hmm. No. And I don't even know there could be some psychology or biology about how one person goes down one road and another will go down the next. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be things that Michael was already predisposed to, but not that we're making excuses at all. He had the choice. He made these choices. But you can totally see both sides of the coin. Oh, you can. And that makes it terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So with all that said, listeners, this is the vicious and ruthless case of unspeakable horror committed in the act of revenge by the extreme dirtbag, William Michael Dennis such a creepy scary story for halloween i know trick-or-treat everybody if someone comes <laughs> in a wolf mask with a machete towards <laughs> your door ask them to show photo id first to make sure it's not a jilted ex-lover <laughs> maybe we all need like those mail slots in the doors <laughs> you can just shoot your little candy out those little mail slots my bedroom is actually like up above the garage where like the front door is. I could just huck it from there. <laughs> I could sit on my roof right there and tell the kids, Open your big, here you go. And <laughs> then bangs off their head. <laughs> well then that just adds entertainment. What's wrong with that? <laughs> no, we need to be we need more human connection. We definitely Open do. your doors. Don't be afraid. Mm, or throw candy at their head. <laughs> You're still technically giving. <laughs> Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. We really appreciate you guys coming back to listen for more. And next week, Melissa's got another Halloween treat for you. Oh, it's going to be fun. So have a good week. See ya. Bye. that's right <laughs> all right well to get into today oh no nope, not yet <laughs> i've got to stop laughing first take another drink <clears throat> eat another cookie that's, that's solves all your problems eat another cookie there's too many m words in here upon the divorce doreen was doreen 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 what am i saying doreen 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 duran duran Ugh. dang it Ain't nobody got no time for that. That's right. What is that? Is it the blender upstairs? Oh, it's the Vitamix. (laughs) I'm getting so good. I know all the sounds at Christie's house. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Build is a soundproof room. (laughs) Don't worry, not the (laughs) blow-up (laughs) type. Now I'm going to be scared to open my door. You know, his attorneys may even have been like, yeah, you should go go to jail for this. Like, just plead. It's such a crazy one.